18-3. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Thank you, Alice. All right, let's pray together. God, we come to you with open hearts, minds, lives, open lives, asking that you would enter in that you would do that by the power of your word, that you would pry open whatever is shut to you, that you would heal whatever is wounded to you, that you would inform with truth whatever is ignorant of you, that you would give life to whatever is dead to you. Jesus, we're asking for a lot, but you've also given us a lot here in this passage. So we pray for your blessing more than a small blessing, we pray, pray for a lavish outpouring of your grace on this time. Now we're really looking forward to what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the people that encountered Jesus when he walked this earth, spent time with people on the sidewalk and in their homes, different places, the people who encountered him typically were so obviously needy, sick, Dying, lost, poor, desperate, needy. And so here was a different sort of person now, one that was described in this passage as a certain ruler, uh, probably an official in a Jewish synagogue, which meant he was a man of some influence and power. Probably very well respected in local society, well known. It's a word, a term that meant that he was a very religious man, a good guy. We also find out that he was wealthy, probably well-dressed, probably looked very put together, probably looked like maybe some of you. I mean, he's sort of your classic golden boy, you know, the kind of person that your mom would love to see you hanging out with. And he has just about everything, it seems. Doing everything right, it seems. 
except that something's not working out for him, it seems. Because we see here he's asking this massive question, this probing existential question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, this phrase, eternal life, bad English translation that we've just gotten used to, it doesn't mean, God, how can I live a very, 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 very long time? But rather, it's an old Jewish phrase that talks about life perfected, a life without sin and suffering and sadness. Can you imagine it? Life as we were created to enjoy it, life as it was meant to be. Do you want it? This is what he's asking about. How do I get that? You would think if anyone has already gotten a taste of it, it would be him. If there's anyone that says, I've gotten pretty darn close in this life, I'm doing all right, it should be him. And yet here we have a man that is asking, is there something that I'm missing? Because you see, there's something that maybe is an emptiness, maybe some kind of insecurity or doubt within me. I feel like there's something I haven't yet gotten. Jesus, tell me what it is. Do you feel that way today? Sparkling on the outside. Dying on the inside. Jesus engages with him with incredible tenderness and compassion. Not for a moment does he write him off. It's actually the man in the end that walks away, not able to engage with the demands and the invitation that Jesus puts before him. Jesus hangs in there. He's tender. He's gracious. He's willing to work with people like you and me. And in this exchange, this question gets raised, what really does keep a person from God? What keeps a person from eternal life? Is it gross immorality? Is it our badness? What keeps a person from eternal life? Is it a hard life, a broken home? Well, here are two things that Jesus points out, and maybe they are unexpected things. Two barriers to eternal life. First, our goodness. And second, our wealth. Two barriers, maybe surprising ones to you, that just might be the thing keeping you and me from an intimate relationship, a saving relationship with the God of the universe, just might be keeping us as a barrier away from our enjoyment both in this life and the life to come of true life, eternal life, our goodness, really, and our wealth, really. Let's take a look. The man comes and asks a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, why do you call me good? It's interesting, he reads this man's heart immediately, and it's almost as if he can hear in one passing word that here really is a core value of this man, goodness. 
And so Jesus talks about it with him a little bit. Good, you call me good, and yet you don't even know me. Am I good? Are you good? Who can be good? No one but God is truly good. I mean, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Honor your parents. Who can really keep any of these? Are you good? Who can really keep any of these commandments? Who can really call themselves good? And here's this man. What's his answer? Well, I can. I can. All these I have kept since I was a boy. I don't think he's being obnoxious. I think he's being genuine. But we can see what Jesus sees, and that is that this man is overly confident in his goodness. Which makes him not so different from us. I was browsing through some studies conducted by the Pew Research Center just this past week, was posting a few things on Facebook in the last week. And one thing that was interesting to me was a study on neighborly relations, the way that people treat one another, a whole host of uh, angles to this that were being studied. But one part of one study revealed some interesting statistics that show that we tend to have an overinflated view of our own neighborliness. We think we're better than we actually are in caring for one another. According to the study, 49% of respondents said, in the past six months, I have listened to a neighbor's problems. But in that same group, only 36% said, someone listened to my problems. A 13% gap. 41% said they recently helped with a neighbor's needs, household chores, lending tools or supplies. 41% said, that's what I did for a neighbor. Only 31%, 10% fewer, said I actually received that kind of help from someone else in my neighborhood. 9% said, hey, I recently very generously loaned a neighbor of mine some money. 9%. Only 3% said a neighbor actually did that for them. See, either we're serving phantom neighbors out there, or we tend to believe that we're more generous with our neighbors than we actually are. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I tend to have a pretty high view of myself, right? Especially when I'm surrounded by people that I think are screwing up. I tend to believe that I'm doing pretty well. I can admit once in a while that I screw up, but then I give myself credit for admitting that I screwed up. I'm pretty good, aren't you? Aren't you? And we define goodness in different ways. We all do. See, some of us might consider ourselves pretty good by what you might call conservative goodness, traditional goodness sort of markers and benchmarks of goodness. You might be saying to yourself, well, I care for my family. I honor my mother and father. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Or at least when I do, I feel really guilty about it. That counts, doesn't it? I know I mess up from time to time, but hey, I am doing my best. 
conservative goodness. Others of us might be more inclined to sign up for what you might call progressive goodness, different kinds of benchmarkers. You say, well, maybe I do my best to make the world a better place. I'm pretty good. I'm tolerant. I'm not racist. I help at a soup kitchen. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Or at least when I do, I make sure that it doesn't really, really hurt anyone. I know I mess up from time to time, but nobody's perfect, are they? See, we all have our standards of goodness, and we all think we're pretty okay at meeting that standard. Jesus here is telling us something maybe surprising, and dear friends, maybe life-changing. And that is this. Do you know that your goodness can keep you from God? Because people that are anchoring their identity and their lives in this narrative, this inner dialogue, this life that is telling them, I'm doing okay, are people that have a hard time believing that they're needy are people that have a hard time believing that they need God are people that have a hard time admitting when they actually do screw up without making excuses or justifying their problems or their wrongs or brushing it under the rug good people tend to believe that they don't need God. With a false sense of moral security, trusting in your goodness. Really, it's this fascinating thing. Think about it, dear friends. The ways in which we can tend to look to our goodness to save us. Where our goodness itself becomes our God. What do I mean? Well, think about those things. Whether if it's caring for your family or avoiding lying and cheating and stealing. Or feeling terrible when you do screw up. Or living your life as a caring neighbor or serving the poor or being a tolerant person and not being racist. Guys, these are good things. A lot of these things are biblical things. But do you understand you can take all of those things and make it your God? If you look to those things as a way of providing for yourself an identity. I'm okay in this world because I am good. Looking to those things to provide for you security. When all life is crumbling before me, at least I'm pretty good. Looking to these things to give for you happiness. Some things in life aren't working out. But at least I'm happy because I have my goodness. In other words, giving looking to our goodness to give what God alone can truly give us because we were made by Him and for Him. You see, to become a Christian, yes, you do need to turn away from your sins, your immorality, yes. But do you know that You also need to turn from all the ways you use the good things in your life to fill the place that God alone should fill. 
Because the greatest sin is not just screwing up and doing bad things. The greatest sin, the sin underneath these sins, is making anything besides God our ultimate source of identity and security and happiness. Making anything besides God our Savior, our God. And we do that with our goodness, don't we? The second barrier that we see in this man's life, that Jesus points out, and that we see in our own hearts. A second barrier to eternal life, to a deeper relationship with God, is our wealth. Our wealth. Also not an easy thing to hear about, is it? This man says, all these things I have done since I was a little boy, and we're told when Jesus heard this, he said to him, Look, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. We're told this ruler, this good guy, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He actually didn't get defensive. He didn't get angry at Jesus. He didn't say that's an unfair question, a low blow. He just quietly knew that he couldn't imagine a life without all his stuff. How about you? Which is the surest sign that your money and your material possessions, like goodness that we just talked about before, has become to you a God. He knew that he was being asked to give up what had become the joy of his life, the center of his identity. And he just couldn't do it because to lose his money would mean he would lose himself. You take that out of my life and there's no more me left. You see, money has incredible power, incredibly addictive power to become an idol in our lives, a surrogate God. Giving to us again all that God himself promises to be, what God alone can actually be in our lives. See, money can get you some kind of security. It can protect you from capricious people and the uncertainties of life including a government that doesn't stay open. But it cannot protect you ultimately with ultimate security, can it? We know that. Money can buy you some forms of happiness, but it can't deeply, deeply make you happy. Money can make you feel like you're in control because you can buy away. You can purchase your problems away. But even the wealthiest are vulnerable to the realities of life in a broken world. See, money has a deceptive power to it. It has a way of sort of dulling our senses, our spiritual senses, so that we start to tell ourselves, I'm not needy. 
I'm in control. I'm okay. See, in other words, we said before that good people have a hard time believing they're needy. Jesus is pointing out again here. Wealthy people too. People with a lot of stuff have a hard time believing that they need God. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 says this almost as a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Surrounding our lives with stuff, or maybe better put, taking deep into our souls a lot of our stuff, and nursing it and coddling it and loving it as our God can dull our senses so that you begin to, in the words of this proverb, disown God and say, Who? I've got all that I need. In this life, the ways in which we can tend to look to our possessions to save us, to look to money as our God, to look to our material possessions to provide for us all the security and the happiness and comfort that God alone can truly give us because we were made by him and for him. You see, money and material possessions are good, but they are powerful, and you might even say dangerous. I mean, don't get me wrong, and don't get the Bible wrong, don't get Jesus wrong here. Money has immense power to bless. Our possessions are given to us as a gift from God. It's right to, for you and me to enjoy the tangible blessings of God, yes. And money is a God-given instrument by which we are meant to love and serve other people. I mean, there's a change of thought. To think that the things that you have, the possessions that you have, are one of the most critical ways that God has given to you to love your neighbor, to serve one another. See, money and material possessions are a gift. They are good. They are powerful but they need to be handled with extreme care. See, God doesn't say run away from it. God doesn't say despise it. But he does say put on that hazmat suit. Because if you don't handle your possessions with extreme caution and careful, humble, Sober care, it will eat you up. Do you live like that? Growing up, I remember the day when I recognized that my dad, whenever he would come home from work, would empty his pockets, put his keys on the table, then his wallet, but he would always put this little tag, this funny thing he would clip onto his suit coat. And put that as well on the table. Didn't know what it was for a number of years as I, was, as I was growing up until one day I asked him and he explained to me in terms that I could barely understand at that time. 
maybe six, seven, eight years old, that that was a little monitor to measure the amount of radiation that his body was being hit by in his daily work. You see, my dad was a radiation oncologist, a physician that worked with cancer patients, and every day would be surrounded by these intensely powerful beams of radiation that, in fact, were being used to give life. But he also knew that wrongly applied and misdirected to the wrong places at the wrong time, that very same life-giving radiation, that radiation that can microwave a hot dinner or a hot pocket and give you life, that very same radiation that can kill cancer cells that are running you off the cliff, and is now saving you, that very same radiation has the power to kill you. Money's no different. Friends, do you have that little tag on your shirt or in your soul where you're keeping watch of how the power of money and the power of the stuff that you have is affecting your lives. I mean, maybe it'd be good to change the metaphor a little bit for us to kind of start to walk through life. And maybe you do this as an exercise in the coming week. You know, there's a big red handle with care stickers that you see when boxes are shipped to your home or when you move with a broken glass icon or something of that sort. Maybe on your wallet, you have an imaginary or maybe real handle with care sticker to keep you sharp. Or maybe on your credit card. Or maybe on your favorite couch. Handle with care. See, because it doesn't have to be something extravagant. It can be just about anything. Just about anything that our heart begins to latch onto and say... This here is my God, my comfort, my security, my hope, my happiness. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. In fact, good chance, it really already is. Do you see it? Which is why Jesus says this absolutely intimidating line, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. Humanly speaking, it is absolutely impossible because of our heart's capacity to deceive ourselves and to make everything, whether from our goodness to our wealth and our stuff, our material possessions, into a replacement God that we're bowing our knees to and crying out, save me. We're stuck. We're stuck. And do you see, this is exactly the problem with these things. See, when we're taken by our goodness, what we are saying is eternal life is in fact possible because I'm doing pretty well in life. It is possible. I can do it. For the person that is wrestling with wealth, 
Here, too, eternal life is possible. Salvation is possible. I can earn it. I can purchase it. You see, this is what Jesus leads us to. How do you overcome these barriers then? How do you overcome using our goodness and using our stuff as our God? It begins with acknowledging that I don't have it all together. That I am bad. Some of us have never actually said that and meant it before. I know that's not all you are. and That's not all I am. But it is who you are, at least when you're being honest with yourself. Where you're able to start to say, I am weak. I am broke. I am bankrupt. And therefore, I can't pay my way into God's favor I can't change God's mind about me as a sinner. I need to be saved by the grace of God, by a miracle of God. I can only be saved by believing that my salvation is utterly impossible. Have you come to that point? Are you beginning to get to that point? Jesus says what is impossible with man is indeed possible with God. Are you recognizing the impossibility of attaining eternal life and the possibility that God actually might have provided it for you and me as a gift of grace through his son, Jesus? Are you beginning to see the impossible love of God? Impossible because you can't really ask for it. You can't stand on something and say, Jesus, this is exactly why I'm deserving of your kindness and your favor. Impossible to actually say that with integrity. You're knowing your sin. You're knowing your brokenness. And yet you're knowing the impossibility of the love that he indeed does give to you. You're getting to know the impossibility of bringing together perfect justice and perfect mercy, which is exactly what God has done on the cross of Jesus. Not for a moment compromising his holy judgment of sin, the punishment we all deserve, and while at the same time giving us mercy by satisfying justice. Not obliterating it, Not setting it aside, but satisfying justice on the cross as Jesus took the judgment that we deserve for all of our failed goodness, for all of our idolatry and moral addictions. You're starting to see the impossibility of the demand that the impossibility of of demanding that God would come and and rescue us. You know, you can't really ask that of God. Why would he respond? Upon what basis could you actually ask that he do that? And yet, he did. God coming 
in the person of his son. Jesus, who actually had all treasure in heaven, had everything, and yet he left it all, he became poor. Jesus, who lived that perfect life of goodness that we didn't live, that we pretend we actually are living. And yet in all reality, he did live and get this. He then credits it to your moral account. So that when you embrace him, God looks at you and says, there in your life is perfect goodness. And now every blessing and favor and joy and happiness and security and everything that we've been lusting after all our lives, he gives to us as a gift because of his son. But it's a gift. It's a miracle of grace. And therein lies the difference between the Christian gospel and every other system of faith whether a world religion or a personally conceived system of getting right with God. No one else conceives that it requires a miracle because you can do it, you're told or you say to yourself. Here is one place, one story that tells us the truth, that try hard as you may, your goodness doesn't measure up, And your wealth can never purchase your way into God's favor. And yet here's a God that gives you all that you need through his son as a gift of grace and a miracle. Do you know this impossible story of kindness? Do you know this impossible story of salvation? Is it giving you joy? Is it making you surprised over and over again? I can't believe he would love me so. Deep gratitude overflowing from your lives. Humility, not looking down on people that either have less than you or aren't as good as you. Because, hey, even my life is by the grace of God. A life that's being changed by the generosity of God and therefore becomes generous itself. Giving to the poor, maybe even laying down your entire life For those that have not, because you know that you were poured into as one who had not. This is the impossible story of the gospel. Are you hearing it? Are you living it? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would change our minds, every one of us, about the way that we too often approach you and look to you and look at ourselves and look to one another. Jesus, thank you for the miracle of your kindness. Thank you for this good news of your favor and your love. We rejoice in you. How can we not sing your praises? How can we not lift up our hearts and sing? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.